Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 2, Chapter 2 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 2, read by Lindsay Summers. Part 2, Chapter 2, The Twins We lost a cow that gave birth to twin calves, which also died. Dermot grew ever quieter at his bad luck. I must go to Terra and become a base client. I will arrange to take on four calves in the fall. The day after Dermot left, I was getting water when a man and a woman with a mule cart arrived over the hill by the cross. They stopped and prayed, and then waved when they spied me. I waved back, and they descended. Welcome, strangers. This is a farm of the Enail family. My husband Dermot is the priest, but he has gone to Terra. Did you not see him on the road? They had not seen him, having come from the southwest. I am Joseph, and this is my wife, Bridget. We are smiths offering our work. Come and have some water. They tied the mule to a post and went inside where Deirdre was spinning. Tell us of your travels, Deirdre asked warmly when they were settled. Have you ever travelled with a man named Alton? He came this way, an old man travelling alone. They shook their heads and then exchanged a look. He might have taken that name, Bridget said. Or his brother, said Joseph. I brought them a cup of water to share. That sounds like something to be told, I said. Bridget spoke. From our way, two brothers have gone travelling on pilgrimage. Go in separate ways. One is a most holy man, Ewan, whom it's a blessing to know. He is generous and hard-working and reads the scriptures. He has a brother, his twin. Yvain is his name. He is an evil man, luring young girls into his carnal schemes he gains the trust of people with his twinkling eye and musical voice and then leaves them in shame. I looked at Deirdre. She did not seem to react to this, but her voice was strained. And what became of them and, and what did they look like? Yvain was run off the farm and wanders alone. Ewan, the holy man, decided to set out on pilgrimage to try to expiate his brother's sins. They are both tall and grey-haired, with a closely clipped beard. Would the holy man Ewan travel under some other name? I asked. Joseph answered. He might out of modesty, so great is his reputation. Is there not any difference between them? Yes, said Bridget. Yvain has a scar on his arm from a time when vengeance was taken on him. It is a deep gash below his right elbow. What I thought was that Alton had not lifted a finger to help us in our chores during the feast. I think the holy man was here, Deirdre said. Is that what he looked like, mother? A man, as you described him, stopped on his way to Spain. He's returning soon. I noticed no scar, but his sleeves would cover his arms, I said. Of course it was Ewan, Deirdre said. He was a wonderful man who told us many saints' lives. The children adored him. 
We can't wait for his return. The dogs didn't even bark at him. Tis a blessing, Bridget said. I gave them bread and meat with garlic. Afterward, they went out and offered their ironwork to the clan and set up their tools. The smiths built a fire and worked, Bridget blowing the bellows to melt the iron, her arms bulging with muscles. They stayed a week, making new scythes and sharpening knives and tools in exchange for food and ale and linen. I kept an eye out for Dermot every day. I felt irritable that strangers seemed to be coming so much and didn't want more guests without my husband nearby. I began to worry that Olten would return before Dermot. That night, I slept with Deirdre curled beside me. Before we fell asleep, I whispered to Deirdre, Best not to mention Ewan and Devane to your father when he returns. As you say, Deirdre mumbled sleepily. After Joseph and Bridget left, I was mending a gown in the late afternoon, outside by the door of the house, when I heard the cart. I jumped up and ran to the footbridge. On the hill in the long shadows were Dermot and three other men, the two he had left with, and another. A tall, hooded shadow moved slowly behind the shorter shadows of my family. The thin shadow of a walking stick slanted across all four shadows like a yoke holding them together. When they arrived at the cross, they stopped to pray. Dermot thanked the Lord for their uneventful journey. I took a few steps back. Unconsciously, my mouth worked to whisper the paternoster with Dermot, whose voice cut through the shadows while I stared transfixed at Alton. I wanted to hide from the ready, beatific smile I knew would beam at me at any moment. There was nothing to hide behind. The trees too few and thin. The men and nephews came from the barn and fields, having heard Dermot's voice, and when they jostled and hurried to the bridge, I stepped back among the crowd of men. They waited in respectful silence until the returning party brought their outstretched arms together with an amen. Dermot came straight to me and kissed me. Dear wife, he said. I was glad he had come to me first. The men plied the sojourners with questions, and the younger boys and girls ran up, followed by other women. While Dermot tried vainly to answer the rain of questions, Alton stepped out of the group and approached Deirdre. I watched as he bent down to pat the dog and greet Deirdre. Dermot waved his arms to quiet the group. We'll have dinner and light a bonfire and tell you all about it, he said. Come to the stream and wash yourself, I said to Alton. Thank you, bless you, dear Una. Are you in good health? Go inside now, girl, and, and get a pail, I said. Deirdre, still smiling, slipped inside. The dog, his tail wagging, remained as Alton scratched his ears. Do you leave everything just so, so she can find it? Alton asked. Yes. She does well. Deirdre returned with a pail and a cloth. Come then, I said, beckoning to Alton. But as we headed for the stream, I thought it might be too dark anyway to see what I was looking for. 
Alton cleared his throat. <clears throat> Are you sure nothing's wrong? He asked. Only that good men were gone when there was much work, I said. Tomorrow I'm glad to help. I'm not so old, Alton replied with a chuckle. We were at the stream, and as I dipped the pail, he sat down on the large, flat rock and took off his shoes. I knelt and started washing his feet. Now it really was dark, and there was no moon. The bonfire started in the green. Would you like a full bath? I asked. There's a tub on the other side of the shed. I could barely see his face, but his smiling teeth glinted white. Perhaps tomorrow after our work, he said. I dried his feet and he slipped his shoes back on. It feels so fine to be here again. This does feel like a home to me, he said. Have you been long in traveling? And have you no home? I asked. When my wife died, her brothers drove me out to take the land. I had no sons to defend me. I tried to hear in his voice whether this was true, and he sounded sincere, but I couldn't know. And where was this, nearby or far off? Far off north. I've prayed for God's help, but it is not his will. Now I suppose I will join a monastery. It's unlikely I'll find another wife, he added thoughtfully. Then he came to himself abruptly. Not one as my wife was like. We went to the bonfire, where everyone was assembled, waiting to hear stories of Tara and their travels. When Dermot was through, they clamoured for Alton to speak of his travels to Spain. He started by announcing that the High King at Tara gave his permission for their journey to Iona. I didn't look at Dermot. Alton sat on a stool with his back to the fire. The light sparkled in his silver hair, and he seemed, rather than tired by his journey, to gain strength at their attention. He was in fine form. I came to the coast and walked along the cliff where the gulls dove amid the foam. It was grey and a storm threatened from the sea. At dusk I came to a family of fishermen, four tidy houses held fast against the wind, and a collection of coracles tied up. The first house contained three barley brothers, who welcomed me with beer and fried bream. Bread was scarce for them. The sea was all they had. We ate dried seaweed for breakfast the next day, and I met the other households, another brother and his wife, two sisters, and their great-uncle, a widower who lived in his wee cabin alone and preferred not to keep company with other men. He stayed in his dark room and prayed constantly, and they usually left his fish and what else they had every morning outside his door. The four brothers fished, the two sisters and their sister-in-law planted what they could, gathered berries and seaweed, and when they could, they went to other homesteads to trade dried fish or the occasional seal meat for oats or wool. What the old man prayed for every day was for wives for the three brothers and husbands for the two sisters to bring them land and children. It was a spare life they led, and lonely, but God kept them in harmony with each other, 
so that there were no quarrels between them. The weather was bad for sailing to Spain, where they were willing to take me when the wind turned. I stayed four days with them. After the first night, I stayed with the old uncle, and we prayed mightily together. The third night, I awoke to hear him crying and moaning in his sleep. I shook him and commanded he tell me what troubled his soul. He confessed then that he had a secret sin that stained his conscience, and he knew that God was punishing his family for that, and that was why their existence was so mean and lonely. I reassured him that it was a blessing that the family dwelt in peace together, and I bade him come on pilgrimage with me to ease his soul. He was content at that idea. The next day, two of the brothers took us to sea, and we left for Spain. The sea was calm, and the wind was strong in the right direction. The men caught several fine big fish on the way to present to the moors when we docked. We arrived at the largest city I have ever seen, at least a score of houses, glistening white in the sun with clay tiles for roofs. The sun at this place was bright and hot, and it hurt our eyes. We were quickly surrounded by moors, and we said, St. James, St. James, to them, and gave them our fish. They made sure we had no weapons, but it wasn't enough for them. They took one brother as a hostage to ensure we would return in peace from the chapel at Compostela, while a moor was sent to accompany us. We didn't speak any common language, and he rode a fine black horse beside us as we walked the few miles to the chapel, the one brother, the old man, and I. The chapel was a holy sight to see, so white and spacious, with two windows made of glass. When we entered, the air inside was thick with incense. A stone in front of the altar marked the place underneath where the bones of St. James conferred their blessing on the church. We fell to our knees and prayed all the rest of the day until sunset. Then, as the setting sun made a streak of red-gold light across his face, the old man suddenly gasped and clutched his chest. He collapsed across the stones. His nephew ran outside to try to tell the moor we needed a priest. The moor understood something dire had happened, and he came to the door and saw the prostrate man. He went back out, and I heard his horse gallop away. The old man was gasping and his eyelids fluttered. Since his breathing was difficult, we thought to take him outside, away from the smoke of the incense. We carried him out and lay him on a bench beside the chapel, and we prayed over him. Very soon the moor was back with a man on another horse. But it was not a priest, but another moor with a large cloth bag. The other moor, an older man with black hair and a grey beard, came up to us with his bag and knelt beside him, opening our dying companion's shirt. He took small glass flasks from his bag and held one to the lips of the dying man, who drank, hardly aware of what was happening. The moor was a doctor of some sort and he took the old man's pulse. He shook his head and took out a jar of ointment which he rubbed on the man's chest. The old man began to whisper, and the moor bent his ear to his lips, 
I knew he was confessing his secret sin to the moor, in a language this moor would not understand. The moor kept hold of his wrist as he listened, and the man gasped out his final confession. The moor looked very thoughtful, as if these unknowable words had some meaning to him. There was a final sigh from the old man, and when the moor lay his hand back down on his chest, I knew our sorrowful companion had expired. Now no Christian would ever know his secret, and I was both angry and frightened that he would die without a priest, but instead with a useless doctor who could not save his soul. But at least he had made his pilgrimage and encountered the bones of St. James. I prayed this would be blessing enough. Other moors arrived with shovels and picks, and we buried him in that holy place. It was dawn when we walked back into the city by the water. I was in a daze of sorts. We had come to help this man, and now he was dead and buried in a faraway land. I heard a cry of a man calling forth a sinuous song, and the multitude knelt everywhere they had stood, and bowed very low and prayed to the rising sun. It did feel like an evil thing, that his soul was fastened to this foreign place that worshipped the blazing sun. The moor that had come with us invited us into his home, where in a shaded courtyard he gave us olives and meat for breakfast. He invited us with gestures and seemed to understand our mourning. He spoke a little in his tongue, as if we could understand, and I replied likewise. He gave us a bag of olives and dried fish for the journey. Then there was nothing more to do, and we found our boat at the dock. We sailed in silence, and the sea was rough. The two brothers worked hard in concentration to keep us afloat and in the right direction. Then I wondered if I had done the wrong thing to take on this pilgrimage. But it had to be God's will. The beach was a welcome sight, and when we arrived and dragged the boat ashore, the two young men collapsed with exhaustion. I made a fire for us from driftwood, and we sat, still stunned in quietude. It was a cloudless night, and the moon on the water looked like a silver high road. I thought it could be the path for the old man's soul gliding up to heaven. I stayed awake all night, watching over the two men, so like boys in their sleep. In the morning, the brother who had been held hostage took a small wax brick from his pouch and showed us something amazing that I'll show you when I'm done. The rest of the journey was calm, and we were back in their homestead by nightfall. I stayed while they sent for a priest, and we held a prayer service for their uncle's soul. I wanted to discover if the old man's wish would be answered, if wives and husbands would now be found. But in that time, I saw no answer. All in good time with the Lord. He finished his story, and there were many questions about the moors, the foreign land, the chapel, the miracles of St. James, and the olives, which no one had ever tasted. All of the night was spent in this discussion, and no one minded. 
Ah, and something interesting indeed, he said. He put his hand into the pouch on his belt and took out a small waxen brick. Bring me a pail of water and a sooty stick. The children ran to do so. He pushed his sleeves up his elbows. I stepped up close beside him. He smeared the soot on his right arm. Then he took the wax brick and dipped it in the water and swished it around. He rubbed the brick on his arm. It foamed on his skin. He dipped his arm in the water and rinsed it off. His arm had come very clean very quickly. This is soap, he said. They use it in Spain. I've asked fellow travellers I met since then, on my way to Terra. It was known in old Rome and is common in the heathen lands. It cleans by melting itself on the skin, pulling off the dirt. I'll show you how to make it. The crowd was awed by the foreign wonder. I stared hard at Alton's arms in the sunrise, with his sleeves pushed up round his elbows. There was no scar on his naked, hairless arms. We feasted the next day, as well as we could for the time of year, when grain was becoming scarce. Lamar drained his wooden cup and leaned sideways until he almost slid off the bench. Dermot grabbed him, and Lamar straightened himself with a jerk, saying, You are going! It does seem to be God's will, and we are decided. Good journey to you. You have much to prepare. I stretched my hand across the table, and Dermot took it. I tried to search his face, but his eyes were downcast. When I squeezed his hand, he looked at me. His face was bewildered, uncertain, and I grieved to see my steady husband look like a lost boy. His expression would haunt me. Maeve walked Lamar to his house, the place that used to be Kanaktach's, to tend to him. After the other women and I finished clearing up, Maeve came to me by the stream. The moon was rising in the twilight. Maeve's frightened eyes glowed in her shadowed face. I must tell you something, she whispered. I shivered with the fear that this could not be good. What is it? In his drunken state... Lamar told me plainly that he plans to steal your cattle when you go. He says you'll never return anyway. He will take it, and if you do return, he will put you off your land. I took Maeve's hand. Thank you for telling me. You mustn't go. Maeve's strong grip was cold, hanging on to me like the grip of death. But I stopped shivering. Calm descended on me. I must go. It is God's will, I'm sure of it. But I will tell Dermot. Somehow. I breathed the last word in a whisper to myself. In the house, late, behind the curtain, I kissed Dermot, traced my fingertips along his neck, and we knew each other with a lost passion, both knowing this inevitable fate. I fought back tears, Afterward, the words I had to speak were like shards of ice in my throat. Maeve told me that Lamar plans to steal our cattle when we go. He was lying on his back and turned to me, his face peaceful, a note of relief in his voice. Then we cannot go. You cannot go. Someone else can go with us, one of the older boys. 
Dermot's brows knitted, the peaceful look gone. You are stubborn, like your brother. I feel called by God to do this. So he said too. I can't explain. I don't feel there's a choice. He turned and tossed his head back on the pillow, looking upward into the dark. I would not be surprised to get word you've left me for a convent. Go, if you will. I will not have you thinking I own you like a slave. Go. But if you don't return, I will have a wife. I will marry Maeve if you don't return. I trembled at the cold distance in his voice, putting my arms around him and crying against his chest. You parted from my brother in anger. Don't do the same with me. Please, I cannot bear it. He didn't reply for a while, but held me, stiffly at first. Then he pulled me tightly into his arms. Don't cry. You are grieving for my anger. But I am grieving too, for your madness. He kissed my face, and we lay in silence for the rest of the night. A week later, Deirdre, Alton, the young man Fergic, and I set off. We packed a mule with some bedding, dried meats and oats, and skins of milk. We rose well before dawn, and the stars glittered like hopeful eyes in the sky. It was warm and damp. I rolled up bedding and our cloaks, and there were conferences on the best way to pack. Deirdre held the mule's rope and stroked its nose while this went on. I felt Dermot was prolonging the packing, and my throat ached. At last there were no more knots to tie, and we stood by the footbridge. Dermot held Deirdre close and kissed the top of her head. Then he embraced me so that my breath was tight in my chest. Take care, my dearest, he whispered. I fear we may be parted very long. Don't say so, it's bad luck, I said with a kiss. We went up the hill and passed the cross. I looked back down and saw him, his arms outstretched in prayer. His lips were moving in words that were to God, but his eyes, shining in the darkness, stayed on me. For a moment, I almost halted the group, almost called off the trip, almost ran back into his arms. I took a few steps forward, and when I looked round again, I could no longer see the light of his eyes or the movement of his lips. And then he was gone, behind the hill as we descended the far side. The farm was gone, and we continued through the fields. And when the sun had risen, I was in fields I didn't know, bordered by a dark wood I had never entered before. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Dream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousdream.com. Thanks for listening.